Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I've invited Will Trout from Javelin Strategy and Research. He is the Director of Digital Wealth Management. I've known Will for a little while now, and we go back and forth joking about things going on in the industry quite frequently. And I brought him on the show this time specifically to talk about some of the bigger trends happening in the RIA market and how they're potentially going to transform the industry in the next, let's call it, 10 years going forward. So with that, here's my interview with Will. Will, thanks for your time today. Hey, Jason. Great to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. One day again at some point in person, but we will see you when I get to leave these lockdowns. All right. So, Will Trout, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do at Javelin Strategy and Research. Yes. Well, as the name implies, we are focused on strategy for financial services institutions and large fintech providers from the standpoint of technology. So looking at the intersection of strategy and technology, how firms can advance their competitive position using tech, whether it's around big picture, earth moving themes like ESG or direct indexing or around specific technologies that are part of the advisory workflow, CRM, financial planning, portfolio management systems. So basically almost a full stack uh, strategy to implementation or I guess product strategy implementation, all of it kind of wrapped up in one. That's right. And we're research driven. I think that's important to keep in mind as opposed to sort of the consultant uh, or strategy consultants who, who, mm-hmm. who produce research to sort of drive consulting business. Our consulting work, which ranges from due diligence to uh, deals to advice, ongoing advice to our clients, is driven by research. And so we survey approximately 1,500 retail investors a year. We also have the ability to survey financial advisors on an ongoing basis. And so that serves as the, the, the fuel that drives our insights and our work in support of our clients. Right. So how did you get into this gig? Tell me about the history. <laughs> Interesting. I think nobody really, well, people do fall into research, but you wouldn't really want to start out as a researcher. I think career-wise, I think the, the idea is to you know, get some experience in one of, in the, in the industry, either from a tech standpoint or more likely for a financial institution. And then once you, you know, get your, your feet wet and sort of work through the day-to-day operational challenges of, of the big bank or the big brokerage and whatever role you have there, ideally several roles, you can get all sides of the landscape. You realize there's simply not enough time in the day to think long and deep about you know, how to move the needle from a strategy perspective, how to really transform the industry. And as we've talked about, Jason, there are a lot of firms that really have tried to reinvent themselves, but have struggled. And so the desire to step back and have that perspective and help others solve these these naughty problems, customization and scale, how to really deliver a robust advice proposition to the end client, the last mile problems of service and delivery. You need time and space to think about that. And that's why I decided to get into the research um, business. I was previously part of the Sellant Oliver Wyman uh, group, uh, head of wealth management for Sellant. Worked in well. I worked in a number of countries, based in the U.S., based in the U.K. And last year, I joined Javelin Strategy and Research. What brought me here? The opportunity to start a wealth management practice from scratch. Yeah, I mean, it's the old working on your practice, not in your practice. And 
it's one of those things where you get you, your job, your benefits of it is that you're a third party who gets to take the 5,000 foot view and advise on how people can work on as opposed to in the practice, right? Yeah, if we can take a tacky example from from <laughs> your side of the border, you know, it's almost like being a hockey goalie, right? You're so focused on on, on on stopping shots, right? You can't really think about, you know, where the game is going and how to orchestrate it. And so having that headspace and having that perspective from, you know, clients across channels from RIA to bank to brokerage and across jurisdictions, U.S., Canada, Europe, elsewhere, really lets you think about best practices and, and how, how uh, I, as an advisor, can, can help my clients. Goalies, yes. They're a particular breed. They're like the drummers of, uh, of sports. Let's put it that way. A little, little, little bit screwy. Friends with some goalies, too. So anyway, so let's jump in. Uh, so you basically have, you know, in the research, you've identified a number of like poor trends that are happening in the industry. And I kind of just want to tackle all of them if we can within this timeline. But the first one in particular is diversification and return, the need for performance powers, private markets right now. And could digital assets help hedge against inflation? Those are the two big questions being being praised. So what you're really talking about there is the expansion of private market issuances and crypto as investment categories within the industry. So tell me what your trends are finding there. Well, that's interesting. And and those are sort of two distinct questions. Look, I mean, the big picture, Jason, as you know, you know, we're we're in the, I mean, people have been saying we're in the tail end of a of a long bull market for some time. And I guess we're still in that bull market. But I think well, the government stimulus stops at least. <laughs> we'll exactly. The interest rate yeah. environment is changing, which is interesting. But I I would say from a, a sort of industry and, and technology perspective, the desire for distinct performance characteristics, some sort of outperformance, um, increased or lack of correlation with the public markets has driven interest, uh, starting, I'd say, with the investor, alternative assets. It's funny, when I started working on some of this research around private markets, so we can call them private capital markets, I'm I'm really not talking about things like REITs, which are sort of a, a waiting pool for, for advisors and for RIAs, but more liquid vehicles, private equity, and the like. You know, when I started this research uh, last year, the market was very focused on the growth of firms like iCapital Case, which it still is today. You probably saw the Apollo investment in, in Case. But since then, digital assets, broadly defined as crypto and, and NFTs and the thing, things like that, have have emerged onto the scene. So so the definition of quote unquote alternative investment clearly is changing, but I think the theme is the same. I mean, looking for something different, looking for something new, traditional concerns about liquidity are maybe less important for investors and advisors. The question remains though, how can financial advisors access these instruments? And that's the sticking point, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we've come a long way in the last year or so with the likes of like on-ramp in the U.S. and similar players starting to pop up in Canada and the private space distribution becomes more and more, is becoming more and more common. But it's it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I've seen some very, very mixed, some studies proving some very mixed results on these claims on outperformance and especially on lack of correlation. <laughs> Basically, completely poo-poo that entire concept, at least on the, alt, on, the uh, on the alt space, but the crypto space, it's a different world altogether. So yes, I can 
I have no doubt that there's a lot of buzz about these things and there's need for access to these things. So besides the companies I mentioned, you know, what kind of inroads have you seen there? And, and how much how much of this is being, do you think is being driven by a consumer versus advisor demand? That's a great question. And that's really part of our value proposition here at Javelin, Jason, in that mm-hmm. we're looking not just at advisor behavior, but we're looking at investor behaviors, technology adoption, trends, preferences. So the idea is that you get an end-to-end view of the marketplace from from manufacturing and distribution on the asset management side down to the needs of the retail investor. So end-to-end vertically integrated perspective. Hmm, kind of sounds like the Canadian banks. Oh, don't start that. I won't go there. You, okay. you want to, You did that on purpose. You did that on purpose to trigger me. Okay, like there's a couple of things that trigger me: open banking and Canadian banking. Ugh, let's not go there before I throw. So, okay. Yeah, but I'll happily answer your question. So, so we've seen the emergence of distribution platforms. I'm thinking iCapital, Case, uh, PPB is another one out of Philadelphia. That, and you've got asset managers in in Canada too, uh, McKenzie, that are very a- active in the space, and that facilitate sort of distribution to to maybe a more limited population downstream. But I think the friction that has always inhibited advisor access to private capital investments still largely remains. I mean, iCapital and Case alone are not going to solve this problem, particularly when it comes to private equity, where you've got a very high-touch, manually-driven subscription process in which there's a lot of need to pull data from documents and forms that are relatively inaccessible. So by that, I mean PDFs, Excel documents that are resistant to automation. And so there's a whole class of fintech firms like Wealth, Wealthforge, Altigo, and others that are trying to solve this workflow problem. And this is very relevant to the RIA space where we're seeing a lot of demand but frankly, lack of bandwidth and technology budget and chops to really um, solve this problem of, of providing access to alternatives to end client to end investors in a in a way that's operationally efficient. So I'll say part of the problem is I'll say part of the problem is in general most firms still need to get their base level technology in order before they start going down those rabbits. All right, so let, let's move on to the second trend, which has been covered several times on this podcast, which is hyper personalization. Questions such as will direct indexing break traditional trade offs between customization and scale? So tell me about what you're seeing in that space. Well, as you know, there's been a, a mad rush into the direct indexing business. It's mm-hmm. almost like no one wants to be left out. And you see firms that traditionally have built their tech and built their, their own intellectual capital in-house, like Vanguard, you know, going yep. hopping outside to acquire Just Invest. Now, there's a lot of work to be done still. Like, How do you incorporate a direct indexing ESG-centered proposition into a platform like Vanguard from a tech, from a servicing, from a pricing standpoint? still unresolved. And the fact of the matter is in the U.S. and Canada's a little bit behind the U.S. A little bit. Continue. (laughs) No one has rolled out really direct indexing in any scalable way. So Schwab pilots it. You've Mm -hmm. got kind of the old guard, Aperio, which was bought. And and the other one, I'm forgetting the name, is a parametric. But I mean, those were targeting the high net worth. So sort of the wholesale rollout of direct indexing in the U.S., um, has not happened yet, and we've still got some some friction to overcome. 
Well, it's incremental baby steps. It's funny. I did an interview on this topic yesterday in particular. And one of the common questions that comes off is just, is this just a repackaging of, of active management as something else that looks to make it look closer to an indexing? And I'm just like, that is too much of a binary view of the universe, right? Like it, it can be either or it's like a t- any tool. It can be used for, like I said, a hammer can be used to you know, hammer and a nail can be used to smash someone's head open, right? It, it, it's not, it's not good or evil, uh, regardless of what your opinion of those two things is. But there's funny, I see a tremendous amount of use cases for this, you know, everything from excluding your own employer's stock as like the simplest version of it to yes, the hyper indexation of ESG and not having the exact companies you don't want in your portfolio. But I think we're going to very much blur the lines between active and passive as part of the implementation of this kind of hyper personalized solution. So that's a great point, Jason. And I would say that there's some, some room for some real innovative thinking here, right? I mean, who said Active active management is used, to use your analogy, as a hammer to beat up costs and managers whose performance has has lagged benchmarks. But to the point about private assets and correlation, I mean, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? And if the market environment changes, I do think there's active management. However we define it doesn't need to be a dirty word. I do think there's intellectual capital waiting to be seized by asset managers and even wealth managers deploying direct indexing in a way that uses some sort of position or take on the market and then overlays a type of screen. Could be Catholic values, could be green energy, it could be organic dog food. Whatever you want, I'm being silly, but whatever you want, I think there is room for differentiation in space and direct indexing offers an avenue to, to seize that. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, being involved relatively heavily in the in the ESG space, I've often had this conversation where people are like, "Well, you know, there's you can talk about the academic framework as to whether or not it's going to underperform or not." And my response is always, "Well, that's besides the point. It's about informed consent. If clients know that there could be a potential performance drag versus the index, but it matches their values and they're willing to accept that, that's on them, right?" So I think it's there's a lot of there's a you know there's Let's put it this way. No one product meets the needs of any one person, of, of, sorry, of all people. And despite the mass proliferation of package solutions in this in the industry, you're never still going to meet the needs of all people. So I get it. I also wonder how much of it's overblown, but I guess we'll see in the future as to as to how much it goes. And I, I truly see, especially from a tax standpoint in the US, not this might be because might come as news to you, Will, but you know, different countries have different tax codes. So not everything's the way that the, you know, the Americans see it, in which you guys have the difference between short and long-term capital gains. So tax loss harvesting to you guys is hugely beneficial given the trade-off in those two rates. There is no short and long-term capital gains in Canada. It's just all capital gains. And other countries don't even tax capital gains, right? So that type of tax play benefit, which I think is one of the ones that has a monetary impact on this, is just not as a viable market uh, or it's just not as important in other countries. So I think that the two aspects of this with of, of, of uh, direct indexing have always been you know, the hyper-personalization, which is nice, and then the tax, which is tangible. The tangible disappears in some countries. So I really do wonder how beyond the US, beyond US borders, just how much we're going to see proliferation of this. I agree. And plus you have also, I mean, in the US and, and to a far lesser degree in other markets, you have zero commission trading, right? Which reduces a lot of the friction around yep. maintaining a portfolio. So that's that's an added obstacle to adoption. But clearly it's a US-led phenomenon. I do think yeah. that uh, you'll see some adoption in other markets that not to the same degree. And the zero commission trading, I think, is almost, frankly, table stakes for proper implementation of this, especially when you're talking about, it depends on like the depth, right? If we're looking at replicating S&P 500, that's 500 
companies. But then if you're looking at replicating like true global indices, how many positions? We're into tens of thousands of positions now. If that's ever going to be viable, it re- it's going to require uh, zero commission trading. Otherwise, every small change is going to just be crushing in terms of cost. Yeah, the other thing I'd say about direct indexing as a product, and, and I think that's the idea here, at least in the States, is to productize direct indexing so you can kind of roll it out at scale and overcome the yeah. razor-thin margins. But look, it's really basically pretty inflexible construct, Jason, in that most direct indexing strategies are built around the public equity markets. There are some fixed income strategies out there. But look, we were just talking about alts, right? Or, or even mm. model model accounts, right? It's very difficult to incorporate these into sort of your boilerplate direct indexing model. And so there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, unless the indexing provider is going to provide a liquidity pool and take on that risk themselves, how are they going to pull it off, right? So makes a lot of sense. So moving on to your third trend, it's <laughs> no surprise given demographics, the move towards retirement income focus. So demographics are pushing the boomer generations retiring, yields are low, and that is fueled, fueling interest in annuities and notes marketplaces. So talk to me about what you're seeing in that space. Sure. Well, you know, the graying of the population is even more the case in Canada. Canada, right, where you already had an older population than, than we the, also have more immigration. That's the thing, and a lot more of it. So we do. You do. Uh, we do. As, a percent, as a percentage of population, we do. Canada. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, how many of those are coming from the states? We'll not, we'll not go there. <laughs> well, depends. You guys keep on raising taxes. You might see a lot more. Uh, you know what? So here's the thing, Will. It depends on who's in office because every election. There's a certain percent, you, you see it all right. the time. I'm moving to Canada, right? And it's hilarious because the number of inquiries I get always follows the election cycle. <laughs> That's it. Let me explain, ta- let me explain taxation. Easy. No, it's not. Right. It's, not. it's also not yeah. easy to to, yeah. to, to get. But, um, Everyone's plan B. <laughs> plan B, plan B. Right. So you've got an older population with a need for retirement income, traditional Pensions of every stripe aren't going to be enough for investors who are living to, into the 90s and beyond and have needs for care. Also, there's a focus on more sort of awareness now of, of planning and wealth transfer and you know how do older clients kind of fulfill all their goals, which is leading an active life into their 80s and 90s, leaving money for the kids, charitable, blah, blah, blah. So, but the short answer to your question is, yeah, how do I generate? income in a in the current rate environment and you know jason i mean five years ago say annuity people that was a dirty word right for financial advisors now you've seen the growth of these platforms like simon simon markets halo uh, that started off offering structured notes bank issued securities and are now offering all sorts of non-securities products uh, foremost annuities in fairness though you've also seen the development of things like you know of no load annuities and and getting away from commissions, which was a big sticking point for the RA market altogether, right? So that has expanded the addressable marketplace. And I think you get to see that trend continue even further. And, you know, you guys, annuities in the US versus other countries, man, you guys got some wonderful tax benefits to those. So it's an interesting one because I feel like it's taken the low interest rate environment for people to actually consider those things because there's the old, I mean, I, I honestly, you know, having done classes in actuarial science and being surrounded by professors who know tons of this stuff, the reality is, is that I, there's people do not properly attribute the value of guaranteed income for life. There's always this, there's always the, the annuity puzzle of if these things are so great, why don't people buy more of them? It's the entire, the entire tying up of that money that people are terrified of. So I think if it wasn't for the low interest rates and we could still, if we could still get 5% on a guaranteed government deposit, I think this market would not be something people would be looking at. 
Yeah, fair enough, Jason. And it's interesting to see what's going to happen. Like these platforms like Simon Markets, which is sort of the leader in, in, in kind of creating a marketplace for notes and annuities in the States now is partnering with, uh, is entering the crypto space. You had, is, is expanding its reach to, who did they partner with? Plus Subscribe, which does that automation for this private equity subscription process I mentioned. So there's a lot of kind of blurring of asset classes, if you will. And this poses a challenge for advisors. And I'd love to hear your take or what you've seen so far in that. How do you get a consolidated or holistic view on client assets if they're starting to morph into all sorts of non-securities plays, digital assets, annuities? I mean, are we back to Excel spreadsheets? I think it's a, a challenge. Well, it's bigger than that. So let's expand. Let's expand the concept to include that of human capital and other ca- and just basically lifestyle capital, right? So, in theory, so you're saying, okay, what about these security instruments or semi-security instruments that are that are private or crypto or you know liquid and not part of traditional marketplaces, right? So yeah, getting that kind of 360 view and making sure the portfolio is properly managed with all that is one thing. But let's let's take it one step further. How much someone decides to have the biggest monster house they possibly can? Uh, well, that's that's a lot of real estate exposure, right? Should there be a consideration for that in the portfolio as well, or they invest outside of it's they invest personally in real estate outside their portfolio? Should you be ratcheting down the real estate exposure within that? And then there's the entire human capital aspect of this of their their lifetime earnings or expected present value of their lifetime earnings. How secure are those, or how volatile are they in a very volatile industry, or are they say a tenured professor where it's like a guaranteed annuity because you can't be fired pretty much and the reality is, is that I think that the industry as a whole, this is part of a bigger picture issue, which is the industry as a whole slowly needs to figure out ways to pull back and truly look at the full lifestyle picture of the entire client and take all of that into consideration when it comes time to design whatever portfolio they're investing in, in traditional markets. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge that, but here's the other thing, Will, it's not just the data aspect of this, it's the regulatory aspect of this. Our regulators are going to be able to wrap their heads around the fact that the traditional you know the SEC is monitoring you know this part of the pot the pie right they're in charge they care about that they care about that part of the pie but we have to explain to them that that part of the pie was modified from what they consider normal based off everything else going on right there's no monitoring system for that right so yeah i mean <laughs> so it's a big big it's topic, it's right? a big thing and and i mean you may, you know if, if you start then to touch on crypto or digital assets you see the SEC really trying to position itself as kind of the the, the arbiter of what's going to work and what, what's not going to work. And so I, I would agree there are a lot of issues that are, are unresolved. I mean, question for you, actually, from what you're seeing north of the border, you know, I talked to my friends in the UK and spent a couple years working there, and there are all sorts of cool tools to sort of help investors draw down their pensions, right? Their pots of money, these decumulation or drawdown tools. We haven't seen, I mean, there's some good tools out there in the States like Life Yield. I don't know how active they are in Canada, but I think a lot of Americans in particular just draw money out of their their houses. You mentioned, you know, skyrocketing home values. I mean, Home equity lines of credit. Some countries call it reverse mortgages. You get the idea. I mean, what's the situation like north of the border? 
Well, I mean, I think in general, both sides of the border, we are seeing a, a, a larger proliferation of specialized software around accumulation planning, right? And not, not just both sides of the border, but elsewhere. So timeline out of the UK, income conductor, uh, what yeah. was the one I just, is it in, yeah, income lab as well. We have some players in Canada around this space popping up, like Cascades and, and Conquest, who's a broad, who's a broader financial planning software, is very much looking at their, their accumulation planning piece of that. So we are seeing for that specific need software being purpose driven around that. Now that's that's one trend. So that is happening. As for what's happening on the other side of this, one of the most popular things that people have come to me, because I get, I'm sure like you do too, people coming to you with ideas for startups. One of the ones that keeps coming up every three months now, or probably even less than more frequently than that for the last several years has been, how do we find ways to creatively or make it easier to access home equity and do that? Maybe, you know, right now, just a big, a big hurdle on that is just registry systems and, and taxation policy. But can, how do we do that beyond the conventional reverse mortgage, right? Is there a way that we can do this as an equity share as opposed to a, a debt instrument? And especially when you're looking at the what is the soon-to-be uh, sequel to the big short that is the Canadian housing market. So we are insane <laughs> up here. The When you look at that, like, and how much, how much wealth has been built in that space and how that is the largest asset everybody has. The reality is, is that most people are counting on, a lot of people are counting on that as being their nest egg. So short of liquidating the home or downsizing, there's a lot of demand for figuring out how to access capital for, or a lot of interest in figuring out how to better access capital within that. And I've seen players pop up utilizing blockchain technologies to do syndicated, syndicated basically lending products around it uh, with a guaranteed, with a ceiling and a floor attached to it that are semi-market participating. So I think we're going to see more and more of that is how do we take this immovable asset that is typically illiquid and give it an option beyond just, I'm going to borrow money at a higher than market rate. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know where I think you were going before I got us off on this sidetrack is this nebulous concept of financial wellness or, or I'm not well, sure. That's your wanna... last point. Wait, wait a uh, second. Uh, well, looking at all sides of the client balance sheet, to your point, Jason, super interesting. I'm going to tee that off for you. I mean, yeah. are you, you have clients, you're working with real life situation, you're a practitioner. What, what are you seeing? Well, I mean, in general, this is, I feel like this is part of the evolution of the industry. And I'll use Manzel's hierarchy of needs as, as part of a, as part of a categorization of this. So we've taken care of the more foundational stuff for years, like the investment and then moving on to planning to help people understand the concepts of why. But now we're kind of like, the planning industry is, especially in the U.S., with the advent of things like financial therapy and and other concepts around financial wellness, which I think is kind of an extension of that. It's basically saying, okay, we've reached this point where we can we've got we've taken care of people's assets, we've taken care of people's planning and goals and dreams, but now how do we give them the ultimate version of their lives? And that is the concept around financial wellness, which is basically let me not just be the quarterly check in where I tell you how your progress to goals is making, but how do I how do I have a live feed into the life that is will? And how do I proactively better your life in a constant ongoing way in, in diverse ways, right? And you know, this is, I will also say, this is part of any normal business or industry evolution is that you find way to maintain margin, you find ways to deliver more and more and more value. 
because right. everything you did before becomes more and more and more commoditized, right? We can easily argue that investment portfolios are commoditized to robo advisors. You know, we're starting to see we're starting to see artificial intelligence being thrown at financial planning software, which is going to reduce the amount of time it takes to do that. So, so you're starting to see everything we did before gets easier, faster, cheaper, commoditizes. How do we continue to maintain our margins and deliver? And and that's every business. You, you find ways to deliver more and more value at the same price point. Yeah, yeah. But of course, like with all these things, great idea, lots of upside. And how do you execute, right? And and so we we've been looking at some of the challenges banks in particular have had. I mean, you know, you really need a, a sort of good data sharing capabilities inside the enterprise, a client level, client view of income, spending balances, your your your, your liquidity relative, you know, taxable versus DC. Holdings, you need good money movement inside the enterprise. You need kind of intelligence. And, and, and I think that's going to be a huge in, uh, focus in Canada too, in part regulation driven. Like, how do you get intelligence down to the branch level? Right. Oh my God. I oh, mean, like, good luck. Well, like, it's, uh, it's, and it's, scale let's it. define intelligence. Digital <laughs> intelligence is the easier part. I mean, but context. Context, well, I, mean, I guess. Context. Well, we, we know this. This is a math problem, right? Okay. At the end of the day, we're dealing with people with less money at that level. And I've had these arguments with, with executives. It's like, it's like I said, well, I wouldn't care about your pricing if you actually provided competent service. And they're like, well, we can't have anything more than a barely 20, 20-year-old because it's not profitable. So it's like, it's this like snake eating itself of, mm-hmm. well, you can't afford to pay people who really know how to give this advice. So therefore, we create these systems to then basically make it cheaper so that people who don't know what they're doing can basically give bad advice. It's just, anyway, yeah, the branch level, I give up. It's that mark. I think that entire space needs to be rethought and figured out that, you know, get away from legacy profitability and figure out a way to deploy actual value in a profitable way. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that the current, I know that the current answer doesn't work. So you got me back on Canadian banks. What are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I did. And and I guess Canada for me is also interesting, Jason, because there's this regulatory tension there. You you have sort of, I mean, I'll use the analogy of a sort of um, animal like crawling back into its cave, right? Reverting to, to proprietary product as a way to protect margins, where in fact, there's this regulatory pressure or force towards a more open advice-driven approach and, and how to reconcile those two lines of thinking is super challenging. Maybe impossible. Yeah, well, well, it's it's ooh, interesting topic you got on. Besides the fact, you know, you're right. The increased increased compliance regulations that have came down recently led a lot of banks to say, "Screw this, we're just going to sell nothing but proprietary going forward." Which they they were they were basically incentivizing their people to do that in the first place, and even admitting to it by saying, "Well, it only makes a small percentage of our business up." Well, that's because you designed it that way. And then the regulators pushed back, and and some of these banks had the audacity to internally basically say, "Yeah, we're moving forward anyway." So I think they've set up themselves. Up for a real for a real bloody nose uh, from this if they don't if they don't actually get their act together. But um, let's let's get away from that. The <laughs> the pressure, like yes, in theory, here, here's the problem with that as well. There has been research done that shows that if you disclose to people that yes, I could offer you other things, but I'm referring you this. And by the way, this conflict of interest uh, because I'm issuing I'm, I'm offering stuff for my own firm. People actually perceive that as a benevolent thing and therefore take the advice anyway, as opposed to saying, well, wait a sec, the conflict of interest is important here, and I should basically oh, you should not be you should not be 
advising this. Anyway, it's it's a mess. It's a mess. Let's like, like you and Canadian banks, you know what triggers me, man. Come on. All right. So, but one thing I want to come back to on financial wellness, and this is interesting. Going back to part of that, which is kind of like life coaching, your research, if I believe is correct, you've shown that small percentage of advisory firms actually offer that, but client expectation or client desire for it is substantially greater than that. Is that not the case? Well, yeah, I think there are two aspects to it. There's sort of uh, concierge services, which range from kind of support for a family's lifestyle to your traveling to a third world country on business, your personal security. We're seeing at the high end, a lot of firms offer that and not that much uptake. And, And maybe that's a finite demand. Where there is a lot of demand and where firms, wealth managers are are falling short relates to to life coaching. And by life coaching, I mean sort of addressing the the human frailties that really define us all. Even people look to their advisor for support uh, around financial decisions, but they also look to them for support around emotional support, say around uh, divorce, death, illness of a child, that sort of thing. And financial advisors are fundamentally unequipped to provide it, even though clients are begging for that emotional connection. And there's a financial planning uh, association study. I don't have the link offhand, but shows like there actually is sort of this desire among advisors for more formal training in managing Again, sort of the personal transitions, yeah, of, of of client lives, but client advisors just don't, you know, haven't done it and don't know how to handle it. And I think as we see this money in motion, the transfer of wealth to the next generation, the inability to address the personal aspects and the, and the, and the, the, the vulnerabilities of their clients' lives is going to really expose itself as a shortcoming. So a lot yeah, of client well, demand there. Yeah, I think you're starting to see, like, I think it was. I think the CFP board started including behavioral aspects of finance into its curriculum. So you're starting to see like the actual accrediting body start to look look at this space. And I feel like there's going to be a big like divide amongst generations of the planners at some point because I this this will be part of the general curriculum at some point. Like it, it, without beyond a shadow of a doubt, because it is is a gaping hole. I've often said in an ideal world where I was properly trained and not just basically meandered my way through and figured it all out along the way, I would have had formal training in things like crisis counseling and therapy and stuff like not enough to, not enough to basically be a doctor, but enough to triage a situation and just be sensitive and aware to it. Because, and and this, this speaks to so many of the criticisms I made of, of things I've heard from players in the past where they say things like, Oh, well, things got awkward and I just didn't want to be there. Or, Oh, I didn't know what to say. I wanted to hide under my desk. It's like, you know, they're, you're just ignoring the fact that the clients expressed a need, maybe not in the best way, but something's wrong there. And we're either, maybe you want to be there to be the technocratic advisor to just worry about those numbers, but that's not what they're looking for from you. And you're not listening if you're not looking at that. So anyway, I think, I think uh, that's it. I think that's it. So are you seeing that being incorporated into different programs or advisor sort of training regimes? I mean, I really no. haven't. I think it's coming. I think it's coming. I think you've seen, again, like things like the Financial Therapy Association. I think you've seen various people, you know, specifically in the industry, speak out on the need for this and write about this sort of stuff and how to deal with people in grief and crisis. Little things like, you know, when you hand them the tissue box, you're telling them to stop crying. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> it's so it's um, so I think that that sort of stuff is still in its early, it's, it's in its infancy, uh, but gaining, but I think it's it's also because it's out there, we're gaining greater knowledge that it's necessary. And it is, it's definitely one of the hot topics in some of my forums that I'm on is it will come up as to, oh, how would you handle a situation like this or advice on dealing with someone in this situation, right? So it's, I feel like a lot of us are feeling unprepared for it. And 
unfortunately, I think those of us who feel like we can handle it to some degree, it's, it came down to experience and having been there before, but doesn't mean I'm handling it right. And so given the challenge, Jason, that advisors have in sort of monetizing planning, right? Planning defined as, you know, more than just using conquest or e-money or whatever. Maybe that's a hook. Maybe that that's sort of where the rubber hits the road. And I'll throw something really crazy out there. We're seeing the increased adoption, certainly in the U.S., also in Europe, of biometric tools for like risk profiling. So like I ask you a question with your consent and you you know, curl up your, 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 your brow. Micro and, expressions are being measured. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Satera in the U S uh, uses a tool like this. Is there a way to sort of, so if advisors want to be technocrats or quantify, I mean, is there a way to get in front of any of these emotions? So, you know, this is sort of blue sky thinking, but I think there is a, there is a hook there. There is value that's not being captured today. Well, I think so. And actually, one, one firm I know actually um, includes on their onboarding a meeting with a financial therapist where they basically have a session to understand you know, and share the results of what their emotional and psychological views around money are and what the hindrances are just to make them aware. And you know, should that person choose to you know, have ongoing counseling and therapy from that therapist, they can. But at the very least, you know, some of the, you know, the bigger... I think, let's just put it this way, I think the therapist might be more adept at figuring out where the real emotional issues are, or will be more uh, emotional issues are, that will only help enhance the advisor uh, experience. And that's something I've considered looking at as well as, as a as a piece for my practice and you know may very well in, uh, create in the next little while. But it's definitely, again, we've got Mansell's hierarchy of needs. We've done all this stuff that's highly commoditized, but can't be commoditized is how we handle individuals and their individual emotional needs around money. And I think that is something that the future, the future is definitely in that direction. Technology is uh, not going to solve for that one anytime soon, unfortunately. I would argue it's all the more necessary in the current pandemic environment. People are stressed. Sure. Sure. So one of the other topics, not in the not in the top four, but something we talked about before and kind of the real kind of, I think in a lot of ways, the battleground for the future is who's going to own the advisor desktop, right? Like this is this is not a small thing. I like the joke that advisors oftentimes, like I'm, I'm used to my life being fractured. I'm used to having all these different softwares all over the place. Some talking to them, some not, and could be better. But I like to say advisors often come to me looking for what they, ref- what they refer to as the one ring, right? Like, you know, they're looking for the one <laughs> ring to rule them all. And I'm like, you need to get your head out, out of that. It's like, there's no one is world class at everything, but you do have companies that are not, that are tackling this in different approaches, right? You have the close to all in ones, like the investments of the world where, Hey, if you want to adopt everything they do, it all works really well together. And maybe it's not everything you want, but it's there. You have the bundled together suites, like the circle black, where it's like, Hey, you know, these are all separate softwares that are all best in class and we've tightly integrated them. And you can use, use uh, that with us. Or you have the ability to kind of link them together yourself with the integrations that exist to date between these things. But those tend to be, I won't say so fully superficial, but they tend to be weak compared to some of the deeper integrations we see at the other side of the spectrum. So the reality is every advisor is their own unique snowflake who wants everything their own way. So how do you see this battle developing and where do you see it going altogether? Got it. Yeah. So I see four or maybe five pretenders to the throne here when you're talking about you know, who's going to own the advisor desktop. There's CRM players, you know, the Salesforce, uh, Red Tails of the world, portfolio accounting platforms, you know, Investnet, Tamarack, and, and, and Morningstar Office, and Black Diamond. There's custody, right, which has historically mm-hmm. been the center of the of the advisor universe in the RIA space. And there's financial planning platforms. We mentioned Navaplan, we mentioned eMoney, Conquest. There are also some bespoke 
overlay tools or combinations that you mentioned that, that provide a kind of desktop portal. Um, Jason, we actually surveyed a bunch of advisors asking just this, where they start their day or what is their go-to platform for managing their business? And you know what? It really, there's a big split. A lot of the REAs we spoke to are really investments focused and they rely heavily investment management focused. They may do planning, but they haven't figured out how to monetize it. They may do a little sort of trust and estate work, but at the end of the day, it's their portfolio, it's their black diamond or whatever system they're using to manage the portfolio. It is the be all and end all. More relationship centric advisors we find who are trying to diversify into some of the less commoditized areas we discussed will rely on their CRM. That said, there seems to be a strong uh, split between CRM at the enterprise level, the sales forces of the, of the world that offer a ton of functionality at a price, and sort of the more bare bones usage by advisors, you know, some of the platforms like Juncture, Wealth, Wealth Access, that offer a simplified experience at a, at a relatively low price. So the battle hasn't been lost or won. I think mm-hmm. the custodians are still in the ring as well. Yeah. So, I mean, we discussed the custodians. At this point, they're being slowly abstracted to the point of being a utility, right? Because at the end of the day, where you put the money is something that really is not going to add the personal touch or nth degree of value to the relationship, right? Yep. At the end of the day, it, it will, you know, over time, it becomes kind of the, the cellular network you're attached to, although with the, with the benefit of being able to attach to more than I love Rogers. Come on. No, I'm oh God! Yeah, <laughs> for anyone who anyone in the states <laughs> who wants to follow the uh, a succession crisis in real life, go go Google that one. That's <sighs> hysterical and pathetic at the same time. My cellular service about to get cut. Let's see what happens. You know, I custody, like it, right. exact, back so custody back to custody. So that one I, I see as being abstracted to more and more of just a back end player over time. Now that being said, the custody custodians, many of them are starting to get smart and say, okay, well we're going to offer this entire suite of like follow what RBC did. RBC was the innovator of Circle Black. Here's a wrap package. You're seeing Pershing now talk about doing the exact same thing. I fully believe that they will all offer the deeply integrated suite of, of products just to kind of try to keep you and you know provide as much value to the consumer. But at the end of the day, uh, if, they, if someone decides that they want to go from Pershing to Fidelity, they're going to try to keep all that tech suite together <laughs> and to integrate into Fidelity, right? So I think that becomes an abstraction. But you're right. I think it, it comes down to where do you spend your day? And I, it makes perfect sense. If you're completely investment focused, you would spend time in the investment console. If you're completely relationship focus, which I'd say is my existence. I mean, I got a split screen between Salesforce and my my inbox. Like that's 90% of my day right there. And I think what it really comes down to, I always when when talking to companies about integrations into into Salesforce and other things, it's like, look, this is this needs to be the 80-20 rule. I need 20% of the information 80% of the time. Just get that to me in a CRM. And let me, I don't need you to replicate any of the other functionality. If I need to do something, I'll go into that separate software. But the entire aggregation of the entire client 360 picture into the CRM space, I don't see that happening in the portfolio management world. I, I mean, I, it's such a it's such a weird fit to try to even do that. But to me, the real play is let me get as much of the client's life into the CRM yep. so that it is, it is visible. The client calls, I don't have to go touching any other system. It's all there. If I have to do something, then I have to go touch that system. But I look at it and say, the potential's there. The problem is, to date, we've seen only kind of two different implementations of it. We've seen the very basic rudimentary integrations that don't provide a lot more than some basic information, which maybe it doesn't get the full 20% of the info. And then we have the more deeper ones, which can be implemented on like a Salesforce enterprise solution. But man, those are costly, right? Like Four, four so, times as much. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, I can tell I you where where the where the bare bones ones fall down. Links yep. to email in particular, so to Google mm-hmm. products, and you know, even to sort of the broker dealer platform. You send an email to import it; it doesn't happen. And also yep. content marketing. So we're seeing a lot of RIAs start to use platforms like Levitate. You may have heard mm-hmm. of that one to sort of do functions around drip dripping on clients that their CRMs promise to do, but don't necessarily do that well. So there's still room for the the kind of bare bones model to, to grow as well, I think. Well, it's interesting because you have that entire, you know, that dichotomy of, I always say, you're never going to be best in class at everything, right? And even if you acquire someone who's best in class, I think at a certain point, it's a distraction to the company, right? So Salesforce has part on, and I would argue that it's a great, it's a great product and when you, when you fully set it up, but that's not cheap or, or easy, but there's, there's simpler, easier, more, very effective tools out there that are probably a little bit further ahead in some, in some areas. Right. So it's um, yeah, again, I, I'll keep saying this. There is no one ring. And frankly, if you do find one platform that does it all or claims to do it all, you're probably sacrificing a lot of functionality elsewhere. I think just the, to me, the real challenge is, you know, that, that fight for, so to me, I think the real play down the road, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is is the likes of these enterprise solutions moving down market. Now the challenge there is their fat margins they're used to, right? But like I always say to myself, like if FSC could be brought down market and implementation and integration made off the shelf, just go into the app store, click a button, and boom, there's a default integration to whatever financial planning software and to whatever custodian, to whatever portfolio management software. And there's a default implementation that solves that 80-20 rule. Then if someone wants to go beyond that, go pay a developer to make it your custom implementation. They do that. And it's like, they're going to start to eat market share away from some of the smaller, some of the more off the shelf CRM players. Yeah. What I'm trying to figure out is in fact, are the smaller players, the red tails, the junctures, the wealth boxes, I mean, they wouldn't, they want to go up market now could be a sort of meeting in the middle. Um, well, I think that's going to be that's going to be the case. I think they're going to collide somewhere. And if you look at, I mean, you look at even the T three survey, right? It's like lower the market. It's like red tail, wealth box, juncture, hop in the market, Salesforce, you know, some other players, and then you get this middle gap where it's like at a certain point, someone gets to a certain level, and you switch from the players, the smaller players, to the bigger players, right? There's there's a, there's a threshold where it becomes economically viable. And yeah, it's interesting. I actually someone someone contacted me once and said, you, you know, do you think that these guys are a challenge or competitor to Salesforce long run? I said, I think that's I think the real and I'll, I'll say this. I think the real interesting competitors out there are the no code platforms on databases like the Airtables of the world. Still very early. But my God, can you create and modify and do things and, and integrate things faster than and cheaper and easier than anything else I've seen? Now, a lot of people will probably laugh at me for, for basically comparing the likes of Airtable and, and probably Monday to, to those you know, CRM behemoths. But I think they're you know, the entire no-code revolution that's happening slowly. I think that there's real room for displacement of some of these players if someone gets a no-code CRM tool to wrap together all these vendors going it would be it would be very fascinating to see that happen i mean salesforce is working on a bunch of no code stuff but they're still based off salesforce so you still have that legacy back end so that's what it is anyway any other trends we should be talking about before we sign off well i think that's it i think um i'm i'm currently looking at investor how investors you know want to communicate with their advisors and possible ad- adoption of chat, even even sort of blurring with sort of WhatsApp and channels that are really popular in other parts of the world. So I think that's an interesting one to explore as well. Now that's a one ring I would love to have is one chat, one console for my text, 
my iMessage, my my you know SMS, like whatever, every chat protocol. Give me just one console to handle that all that integrates into my CRM, and I would be very happy. As opposed to and even email, like get like ugh, it's, it's so broken. It's so broken. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, would be fun to talk life. about that offline for sure. What it would be. Excellent. So, Will, thank you so much for taking the time today. Very much appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Jason. Thanks. Hope to see you in person again soon. One day. One day. One day. We'll, we'll see. Hopefully later this year. Good to see you. Exactly. Thank you. Excellent. So that was my interview with Will Trout of Javelin Strategy and Research. I hope you enjoyed that. Some of that was technology-based, more, more so larger trends in the RAA and financial planning space uh, in Canada and the U.S. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever it's your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.